Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening, everybody. My name is John, and I'm an alcoholic. And by the grace of God, this Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, the help of a lot of sponsors over the years, and the help of a lot of good people like you, I've been sober since September 7th, 1976, and I'm very grateful for that. Sometimes dry as a fire hazard, as they say. <laughs> but, but I, when Tom asked me to speak, I, I thought to myself, I'm glad it isn't the night of a football game. Cause one, cause one time not too long ago, a couple of years ago at Alpharetta, I spoke and hardly anyone showed up because it was the night of a playoff game of some sort. And, uh, I said, well, I'm going to speak anyway. And I think there were about ten people there. And and uh, it gave me a chance to tell them about how I feel about football. Because because I uh, I used to, I loved football. I love football. I used to play the game. And uh, I used to watch it on TV all day Saturday. Uh and then I'd watch it Sunday, and I'd, I'd get the pro plan so I could watch more than just two games on Sunday, things like this. And, my, of course, Monday night football. And and my wife, bless her heart at the time, she just she uh, knew enough to just leave me alone during football season. And so that's when she used to usually go to meetings. But... Uh, I uh, noticed one day we were sitting there uh, watching the Super Bowl, and she got the idea, and quite properly so, that football season was just about over. So at the end of the third quarter, she got up and uh, left the room, and I was wondering what happened to her and all that. She's going to miss the fourth quarter and so forth. And when the final gun went off, I looked up, and there she was standing there by my chair, in this pretty gray negligee, and she looked really nice. She did herself up really well. And I said, well, honey, I don't believe I've ever seen that gray negligee before. And she says, this isn't gray, it's dust. <laughs> so, so, so there are times where football can hurt your sobriety, and there's times when, there are times when it can hurt a marriage too, so probably has done so. But I'm so happy particularly to be able to uh, speak tonight at an anniversary because the 33rd anniversary of Sober at Six, uh, 33 years is 33 years of a lot of generations of AA. AA generations aren't like human generations. They're a couple years, depending on how long it takes people to sponsor other people and so forth. And... So the longer something exists, like 33 years, think of all the people who have gotten sober and stayed sober because of the Sober at Six group, notwithstanding the uh, the way it got started and all that. 
but uh, I uh, appreciate the chance to speak to you tonight. And uh, to begin with, uh, when I first when I first came in to AA and had to admit, had to surrender, had to say that I'm powerless over alcohol, my life had become unmanageable. I did that all right, and I believed it. But I also was kind of angry. Uh, I said to God, I says, why me, Lord? Why me? I used to say that all the time to him. He and I used to talk, but I did all the talking in, the, in those days. And why have you made me an alcoholic? Uh, and and uh, most people aren't. Why me? And uh, after I had been sober for a while, didn't even take too long, five or six months or something like that, going to a lot of meetings, getting to know a lot of people in AA and and uh, finding out just how wonderful this program was and so forth, I started to say, why not me? Why not me? I am very fortunate to have even found this group. Most alcoholics never find AA, and therefore most alcoholics uh, die drunk, die younger than they should have anyway. And so... Uh, we are all very fortunate to be here, no matter how long we've been here. If we're here tonight, if we're sober, we're richly blessed. Uh, I was born in El Paso, Texas in 1942. And uh, I can even remember the end of World War II because they were all celebrating. That was a military town. My father explained to me why they were celebrating on VJ Day. <clears throat> but uh, the war was over. And, uh, and it was a great time to grow up. And I had wonderful parents. I can't blame anything about my drinking or anything else I've done on my parents or my siblings because I had a wonderful family. Uh, my father was the greatest man I've ever known, and that's how I see my father. He's, he's, he died young because he was a disabled veteran, and he wasn't going to live to be very old anyway. But uh, uh, he, was, he had wisdom like I've never seen. He was also someone who never took a hand to me. I've never heard him raise his voice. I've never seen him angry. And that's very unusual for the oldest son in the family to say. Especially in those days, they were a lot stricter back then. And I felt very fortunate to have the father I did. Because all he had to do if I, if he was disappointed in me was to just look disappointed. And uh, that would tear me up. That was the worst punishment I could have. In fact, I, I, go to him as soon as I can and straighten it out. And then he'd talk to me. But he'd always talk to me. He never yelled at me or anything else. My mother was a great mother. I mean, we had the best cook in the world, everything else. And plus, she was an organizer. She always ran the PTA, which means I couldn't get away with anything. She even ran my high school PTA. And uh, you get uh, mother saying, to their sons, why can't you be like John here? 
you know, and all that. And uh, it's, I'd be just like them if I weren't being watched all the time. But, but uh, she was a wonderful mother. Great, great sister, great brother. Both of them highly successful in life. We, we were all successful because of what our parents passed on to us. Uh, I grew up in the church. I'm very well churched. And I, I consider that an advantage. You know, when people come into Alcoholics Anonymous, so many people say, if I ever hear that God thing, I'm heading right out the door. And some of them do and some of them don't. But, uh, but, uh, I was fortunate to have, to have, uh, a pretty good contact with God, even though I used to argue with him all the time. And, uh, and that gave me a good start in AA. Uh, when I finally did come into it when I was 34. But uh, uh, I grew up, I grew up in the church. Uh, I was, uh, I lived right next near the cathedral in El Paso, Texas, the Catholic cathedral there. And from the time I was six years old, I was in that church because I was, uh, I was always a singer and I was, uh, I was, I was in the cathedral boys choir from the time I was six years old. I was an altar boy when I was eight years old. I was never going to be anything but a Catholic priest. And that's what I was being raised to become. And, uh, I, uh, except during my growing up, I always felt conflicted and I felt conflicted because of conflicting signals you get from different people in the church and so forth. Like I had the nuns in grade school, and I I think about, uh, and and most of them were pretty good. A couple of them I was afraid of. And uh, I think of, a, of an old friend named Sandy who uh, died in 2014, but he... He spoke for years in AA all over the place and uh, just probably one of the, one of the best, if not close to the best around. And I heard him first when I was only about a year and a half sober and he was young. He was young then. And he, uh, he uh, always talked about his, his Catholic schooling with the nuns and he'd say, you know, I was a real well-adjusted kid and all that, a real happy-go-lucky kid, until the nuns told me about purgatory, and then I was screwed up for the rest of my childhood and all that, gave him a complex. Well, in a way, it did that to me, because uh, especially when we were adolescents and so forth, coming up in the seventh and eighth grades and all that, uh, the way you were taught by the nuns, you couldn't even look at a girl without committing a serious sin. And, and, uh, then they'd blame the girl for looking attractive. And, uh, this is a fact back then. It's not, and so, uh, so I was always running to confession. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and it, it uh, but I, I, starting to think, you know, I'm not good enough to be a priest. You know, I'm just not going to make it. I just don't have the the moral character to be. And then I was also, uh, I was the bishop's altar boy when uh, he said, 
masses at 6 a.m. every morning during the week. And I was his altar boy, and he'd say it off a, a private chapel, off the cathedral. And then I'd have breakfast with him and then walk up to my high school, which was only two blocks away, which was uh, Cathedral High School, the Christian Brothers. And uh, so, and I was his vocation. He was going to get me into the priesthood, and and he was all set to send me to to North American College in Rome, which is a seminary, and he had one slot a year he could send somebody to. And uh, and that was kind of an honorable thing to get. And uh, at the last minute, you know, I just said, you know, I don't think I can give up girls, give up women, you know. And, and I was serious. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, I, who says I have to go right now? I talked to my father about it, and that's what he said. He says, well, you don't have to go right now. You can... If you change your mind, you can go next year or something like that. But the bishop never spoke to me after that, after I went and told him. The guy who took my place at the seminary became a bishop, and he's a friend of mine today, and I visit him whenever I get through. He lives in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and uh, he's retired. But uh, and when he introduces me, he says, this guy's the reason I became a bishop, because I got... <laughs> I got to go to the seminary in Rome, but uh, but so I I couldn't. It was too late to apply for any colleges. That, you know, I was about to graduate from high school, and and so I decided. Well, uh, uh, even though I was at the top of my high school class, and uh, I, I I'll just go into the Air Force, or and I went to the recruiting office and went into the Air Force and uh, just get the GI Bill and then go to any college I want because I scored very high on the college board exams. And it was a good plan, good plan around that time. This was 1960. And uh, so I went to enlist in the Air Force, and then some officer came out, a, a captain who was at the recruiting station. He says, you know, you uh, you scored the maximum score on all the exams, the the electrical, the mechanical, the administrative, and the general. And he says, have you ever heard of the Air Force Academy prep school? And I says, uh, no, I haven't. And he says, well, they have one now. They're sending half of them to the Naval Academy prep school and half of them to the West Point prep school until they get it built at the Air Force Academy. And so they sent... 50 to one and 50 to the other. And and uh, I says, well, might as well. Didn't know what I wanted to do in the Air Force at that age. And so I ended up at the prep school, and I ended up getting an appointment. Uh, I went to the Naval Academy prep school, got appointments to both academies, and took the Air Force Academy. And uh, four years later came out as a second lieutenant, Got married. I married. I met my wife at the time. Uh, at uh, I met her while I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy. I was singing for the Air Force Academy Cadet Chorale. We went to sing on the Ed Sullivan Show in New York, and she was singing with Mary Martin in the Sound of Music. And so I met her, and and uh, we were duly impressed, and we got married after I graduated. 
And it was the worst, worst marriage you could imagine. Actually, not really, not really. Uh, we looked good, you know. As a, people, people would invite us over. The senior officers would invite us over because they said, what a beautiful couple, you know, and all that. We got married at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. And, uh, and we had three, three lovely daughters. And that's the good thing about, about the marriage. Whatever marriage goes foul and all that, uh, remember the good parts about it, which are your children. And, uh, so I started drinking, uh, pretty hard when I was 16. And I didn't drink every day and all that. But I, I found something out when I drank that it had very little effect on me. Uh, I used to drink, well, we'd go over to Juarez, Mexico, which is right across the border. And it cost a dime for a shot of tequila over there at the bar. You'd line up these shot glasses, a group of us would go over, start drinking down tequila. Or uh, I like drinking whiskey or gin, uh, vodka if it had Kahlua with it, and, and uh, but it never it never had much of an effect on me. And people would people would say, you know, the, the other people would get obviously drunk, and I'd never seem to. And uh, when I went, of course, when I went to the Air Force Academy, we couldn't drink while we were there. But any time I got away from the place, uh, it was only by the grace of God that I got back on time from from uh, privileges, going out on the town and things like that. Somebody always made sure I got back, and so I managed to managed to make it through my four years there. But I always drank a lot when I drank, and and I, uh, I liked it. I liked the taste of it. I, uh, I liked the warm feeling you got and all that. But I, but I wouldn't get dizzy. I didn't pass out. I, you know, I just keep drinking, keep drinking. And, uh, seemed to have a great capacity. And at that time I was proud of it because even when I quit, when I was 34 years old, my boss said, I don't know why you quit drinking. He says, you could hold it better than any of us. And it's true. I was the one that would drive people home because they they were wiped out. And I had sometimes three and four times as much as they had to drink. And and it just, you know, alcohol was just a part of my life. Uh, I was a highly successful officer in the military. Uh, I was... Uh, winning a lot of decorations and awards and uh, for things I'd done and everything else and accomplishments and uh and actually got promoted to to major uh early ahead of my peers which is in the top 5% and that's when I was thinking of getting out of the air force I had no intention of ever making it my career and I was at the 9 year point then and I says and uh, then I got promoted early, and I said, well, I better think about this and stay in. And so uh, that was the time that I, it, I had reached the low point in my alcoholism. Up to then, I, I didn't have a low point. I, 
I go travel a lot in the Air Force. I was a staff negotiator for Strategic Air Command. I used to go out and settle contract disputes and claims and things like that. And so I'd go out and negotiate, and I always had a backlog of work out in the field. And my wife was nagging me constantly about my drinking, because what did I do most of my, whenever I was home, I did it at home. And uh, I, I used to buy liquor by the case, and then I would, and it would be about a bottle a night, and uh, sometimes more if people came over. But, uh, but uh, then I'd go to work the next morning, and if she got on my nerves too much or, or uh, nagged me too much, I'd uh, call the boss and say, I'm going on a trip tomorrow to Minot Air Force Base. And I had blanket orders, and, and so I could travel anywhere at the command at will. And uh, so I'd just leave town and on a business trip. And then I'd come back. And this went on for a few years, and, and all of a sudden... I come back from Ellsworth Air Force Base in South Dakota. I remember the base and everything because uh, the cab left me off it, from, brought me from the airport to my house. And, uh, I, and, and I uh, had a, somebody from the sheriff's office waiting for me right there and uh, presented me with uh, divorce papers. And it seems my uh, wife left a note inside. She had taken the children and gone back to New York. It was the summertime of 1976. Took the children and went to New York. And uh, so I was there alone. And, and over the course of the divorce proceedings and all that, they, they told us to... Uh, go see this certain marriage counselor that the court appointed. and uh, Or she had a counselor and I had a different one. But uh, the counselor that I had, you know, it's almost like uh, I'm telling you that God was leading me this way because the counselor that I had uh, suggested to me that she says, do you think you might have a problem with alcohol and all that? And I says, no, I really don't. You know, I... I go to work every day. I, 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 geez, I'm doing great guns. You know, I've just been highly successful. Uh, and, and, uh, but at home, I was feeling miserable as heck, miserable as heck, to the point where I was traveling more frequently, getting out. So, so she, she said, well, you know, your wife divorced you and, and the reason given was your alcoholism. And uh, so I said, you know, first of all, I didn't want to get divorced. I was not interested in, in my marriage wrecking. I, if I could put it back together, I would. And I said, if uh, this is if this caused my marriage to dissolve, uh, then I'm going to try and quit drinking. So and she said. Well, if you're going to try and quit drinking, I want you to read this book. And she gave me the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was, she says, this is my private copy. And so I need it back. But uh, if you go ahead and read this, uh, you may have a lot of time on your hands if you are trying to stop drinking. And so that night, it was a Tuesday night. Uh, that was the first night 
in many years that I didn't drink anything. And uh, I also didn't sleep all night. I was happy to watch television, but television back back in 1976 ended at midnight. No cable or anything like that. So what am I going to do after midnight? I'm up all night. I read the book. I just about read it through, all through the stories and everything else before dawn, and I called my boss the next morning, and I said, you know, I need some personal time. You know, I just got filed on for divorce and all that. He said, sure, take all the time you need. So, so I said, I'll be gone the rest of the week. So Wednesday, same thing happens. Wednesday night, I'm watching TV. TV goes off at midnight. I try to go to sleep. I can't go to sleep. Uh, Thursday, same process starts over again. I haven't slept now in three days. And so, so, uh, or I was about to not sleep for three days because Thursday night comes along. And then sometime, uh, early in the evening, actually not too late, it was before midnight because the TV was still on the next day when I first noticed it. Uh, I started hallucinating like crazy. I, uh, it was the worst experience I ever had in my life. I, th I literally think I thought I died and went to hell. And, uh, I, I had never thought about DTs. Some people don't get them or have to drink a lot more than I did to get them and all that. But, but, uh, I woke up on Friday at noon and, uh, on a, soaking floor. It was soaking wet from sweat. And uh, the phone was ringing above me on the counter. And so I I picked up the phone. I finally got up, picked up the phone, and it was this counselor. She says, I'm just calling to see if you had any luck quitting drinking. And uh, I said, well, let me tell you what happened. And she says, oh, my gosh, I had no idea you drank that much. And I said, probably because I didn't tell you. <laughs> and, and, and she says, well, how do you feel now? And I says, if this is the way you feel not drinking, I feel like I'm better off drinking. She says, oh, no, don't do that. She says, whatever you do, don't do that. She says, can you meet me? And, and she, she introduced me to my first AA meeting that night happened to be right next to the Air Force base that I go to, and I knew a lot of people in that meeting. There was a large group like this, and then they break it down into smaller groups for discussion, and one was the beginner's meeting, and I was the only beginner, brand new one. They had some with a couple of months, and then they had uh, a gal named Peggy Martin, who, uh, who was the uh, chair of the meeting, and Peggy was responsible Many of you have been around know her because she's, she's spoken at many AA functions around the country. But uh, she's got, also got a, over 55 years sobriety right now. But she uh, she's responsible for my catching on and staying in AA. She had that meeting just steered to me, if there ever was. And collectively, the people in that room told my story. Uh, I could relate just a little to some, a lot to others, 
but collectively they told my story. Where I really didn't have any alternative to, to say that I'm John and I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, they got me back to a meeting the following night and the following day. You know, I, I went to, I started out going to eight meetings a week and I did for months. I went to two on Fridays and, and I continued to go to work and even when I traveled, because I still had to travel. Uh, we used to have like a phone directory in AA before the internet came out. And, uh, it was, a, that's it. All the, when and where. That's all the meetings in the country and, and, uh, and worldwide actually. And so I'd plan my meetings before I went on a trip and, and, uh, make sure somebody got me to them and so forth. And because it was that important. And, and uh I I grew to love AA very fast. I stayed with it and uh the times I got away for any length of time, like when I moved or when I got had too many uh conflicting things and couldn't go to all the meetings I wanted to go to, I really felt it, you know, because uh I couldn't I usually couldn't wait to get to my meetings. And uh that's the way I am today. I have certain meetings I go to and I can't wait to get to them. And, but anyway, the divorce went through and, uh, wisely they told me, don't get sober for her, get sober for yourself. And that I did. And long comes, uh, somebody I met and, uh, we became fast friends and, I met her in the program. Her very first meeting, she happened to sit down next to me. She was the very first meeting. And she was the type that walked in the room and all heads turned. She was extremely attractive, a gal. And I, I, uh, and when, when she passed away at her funeral in 2015, Peggy Martin was there. And she says, I was there when John and Maria met. And, uh, this was 38 years later. And, uh, and when, when they met, uh, she walked in the room, all heads turned, and John was smitten. And, and, uh, people got a good laugh out of that after a funeral and so on. But anyway, uh, uh, we had a great life together, and she did go back out drinking for about a six-year period. And that was a period that I was in Al-Anon, as well as AA. And I'll never make Al-Anon jokes. I got a lot out of Al-Anon. If I hadn't learned what I learned in Al-Anon, I'd have been miserable. I, I just wouldn't have been able, even if I was going to AA meetings all the time. But... uh so the the whole program, AA, Al Anon, everything is uh, is really uh, a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing in my life. Now, I I tend to skip around quite a bit because I could easily talk for about two hours, and if I just go through the drunkalog and go through getting sober and so forth. So I'll I'll talk about a few things that uh, uh, were important to me in my life. First of all, my, my 
turning it over to the care of God as I understood him. Uh, AA didn't cancel out my religion. It made it better. I could see God from a different standpoint than the ones the nuns taught me. That I was, uh, that I had one foot in hell, or at least I thought I did. And that maybe there was some hope for me. <laughs> and, uh, you taught me that, not the church or anything else. But when I looked at God that way, uh, it made me appreciate my own faith more. The, the, the good thing about my life is I never left that faith. I would always go to church on Sunday the whole time I was drinking everything else. I'd get up if I was hung over or whatever and go to church. But that's probably because I always sang in a choir. And if I didn't sing in the choir, chances are I'd have left the church a long time ago. But I was like somebody standing on the sidelines waiting to get into the football game, wanting to play but couldn't play because I'd wrecked my life so much. And I'd wrecked my life with those character defects that we we came out of now in the church they'll call those sins <laughs> but uh but that I came, that I made a list of and and we went through the fourth and fifth steps and the sixth and seventh was so important uh i uh i started i i think to show how important it is uh that how important god has been in my life and guiding my life, I like to recite a a short poem or missive that uh, is uh, actually written by Anonymous back in the Civil War time frame by a soldier. And it goes like this. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmities that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might be great in the eyes of men. I was given weakness that I might heal the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything that I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have been very richly blessed uh, in just that way. And I've been richly blessed because I didn't get what I prayed for. God rarely gave me what I prayed for. I prayed for a military assignment and he gave me one that I specifically didn't want. You know, and in all cases, they all turned out better than they would have otherwise. In fact, some cases it would have been a disaster if I'd gotten what I asked for. And so, so I learned very early, very early in my first year of sobriety, I learned this. Uh, here I was, uh, when I got promoted to major in the Air Force, first thing I, I did, and this was when I was very new in the program, first thing I did is now I got to see how to get promoted to lieutenant colonel. And so, because I was an ambitious young officer, 
And so, uh, what I did is, uh, uh, looked around for the next assignment and I found one to negotiating with the, with the Shah of Iran doing business over there, uh, out of the embassy for, for, uh, military hardware and things like that. And it was, uh, I had to go to Washington to interview for this job with the Secretary of the Air Force's office because it was called the Secretary of the Air Force Special Projects Office. And, uh, everything was highly classified and so forth. And so I actually get the assignment. I got a call one morning when I walked in and, and the military personnel says, you got the assignment. And it was a lieutenant colonel slot that I was going to and, everything else. So I was just as happy as can be. And then my boss comes to me and he says, the general wants to see you and me. And so I went to, we went to his office. I says, I can't think of anything going on. Do you, can you? And he says, no, not really. He says, but the general wants to see us. And we had this major general who was my boss's boss. And he says, we don't want you to go to Iran. He says, we need you here in SAC. We don't want you to leave SAC. And I wasn't very happy. I says, you know, I, I got this highly selective job and I just got notified about it. He says, he says, we knew that. And, uh, he says, we got notified about it too. He says, but we want you to go down to Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth. Fort Worth, Texas. I didn't mind going to Fort Worth, Texas. I'm a Texan and I love Fort Worth. But, but I says, Carswell, I says, do you realize they've had four base contracting officers down there in the last five years? And I mean, it, it, it was a mess, that office and, and it, eight careers. He says, that's why we're sending you there. And, and and I felt like saying, don't do me any favors, but you can't tell the general that. But, but I was unhappy. I was very unhappy. And I kind of asked God, I says, you know, you might, I hope you have something in mind from this, because Carswell was specifically the base I did not want to get, go to. And, uh, if I had to go somewhere else. So I went down there and, uh, the guy that took my place in Iran, that they signed there was a prisoner of the Ayatollah for a year and a half. You know, they, they were captured. Uh, some of the older people know the history behind that, but, but, uh, uh, and he was never the same. Uh, he was medically retired from the Air Force when he got, uh, out. And I'm saying, you know, God might be looking out for me. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I was in awe when this happened. And especially since uh, I got promoted to lieutenant colonel at the end of the assignment down there, and I cleaned that office up real good and uh, and uh, moved on and uh, to several other assignments. And eventually, I uh, wound up at the Pentagon uh, or I was deputy director of contracting for the Air Force. And so, uh, I was in one of these jobs where you, it was a nerve center. Every, every bad procurement that goes on or every complaint from some major contractor, I had to settle it. 
and uh, and you know, or figure out some way to settle it or get somebody to. And and my fellow colonels came up, came around and they said, they said, uh, don't you just hate it here, John? How can you stand it? They hated going to the Pen- I I didn't want to go to the Pentagon either, but I wound up there. Uh, just prior to that, I had gotten the director's job that my that I had in SAC in Omaha, and I loved that job. But but uh, I says, well, I just kind of take things one day at a time, and and I, and I had a sense of humor, and I think things that, and I I found out something about Alcoholics Anonymous. If you haven't figured out the people who live these principles, if you leave, live these principles. You have an edge on other people. You actually do. It gives you strength to carry on in things that would otherwise be a pain in the neck. And, uh, and I just, one day at a time, I would go. I didn't worry. Uh, uh, often I would, uh, my boss would come in. I worked for a two-star general there. I was his deputy. And he said, uh, listen, the secretary of the Air Force needs to, a quick briefing on on this particular subject. I says, when does he want it? He says, uh, uh, Wednesday morning. Well, this might be Monday morning. So I call his office and, and get on his calendar. And I write a few things down and I, I make a slide or have somebody make it for me. Then I just put it in my drawer and I never picked it up again until 15 minutes before I had a briefing and walked in. There was a time I used to worry all night long, never get any sleep before a briefing like that. And, and he was happy. He says, "Thanks, John. That's exactly what I needed to know." And 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 but but I could uh, I could uh, take care of life so easily at work or anything else. It just teaches you how to live. You can live by this program. So people who who uh, are thinking about how that could ever happen to me. It sure can. You just got to be patient. You got to just practice it every day. Some some of us just get old, and so we build up a lot of time in in AA and things like that. But but uh, we're able to do those things. And AA makes you younger. That's another thing I like to tell people. It actually makes you younger. Uh, there's there's so much to do in AA that keeps us active, and so. So, uh, one more thing I'd like to mention, uh, uh, the, uh, psychologist will tell you that the, the thing that man craves more than anything else, what they want, the basic thing of man is I want to live. Why then do we have people that take their lives? Uh, a lot of people in this program or have been in this program when you leave us. Why? Because of the second want of man, which is I want to be loved. And uh, if, you, if you are not loved or feel that you're not loved, and let's face it, a lot of people when they first reach this program, uh, their families left them, their friends have left them, their boss has fired them. Uh, people shy away from them. They are not loved, and they don't feel loved. Uh, they are in a world of hurt when they come in. And the wonderful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is there's a lot of love in this room. 
How do you get love back in your life? Just by letting people know that you want to get sober and you want to do whatever it takes in this program, and you'll have all the love you can stand. And so people very often get that love back here in this program, and then eventually as they, as they, uh, their life improves and everything else, they'll gain some of the loves back they had before. Maybe their family, maybe not. You know, it's a, but, uh, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. There's a lot of love in these rooms. And for that reason, I say, don't leave us. If you come in here, stay. Stay. I don't care how, I don't care how, uh, uh, angry you are or somebody rubbed you the wrong way or you don't feel you really need this program anymore. Stay. Uh, stay no matter how lousy you feel because, uh, otherwise that love will leave your life again and you may never get back to us. And, uh, one last thing and, and I, I'm right on the, right on the cusp, but one last thing is, uh, back to the sixth step, six and seven. Uh, those character defects, which I, which the church likes to call sin. Uh, the wonderful thing about this program, it got me working on my character defects with God's help, but he didn't remove all of them right away. Uh, I got a number of them removed early, almost right away, and a number of them over the years left. But the one that I most wanted to remove, something I was very ashamed of and all that, and was actually keeping me away from God, pushing me away from God, was still there. And I would pray every day. I, uh, uh, to the point where I, I go to church every morning. I go to church every morning to this day. I did that to help me get through my caretaking of my wife, uh, give me the strength, because I was her caretaker for the last three years of her life. And I just kept going. And it gives me a chance to pray for all the, uh, to, for a lot of people in AA. I have a regular list in my mind. And uh, there are people who know that I pray for them and all that. And, uh, especially if they've left and they need to come back. And, and, uh, but I will always do it because, uh, prayer works. And I talk to God. I, I meditate when I go to church. Uh, I talk to him and he talks to me. I don't hear his voice in my ears, but I hear it in my heart. And then when I do, I'm ready to leave there and I know what the next right thing to do that day is. It just seems to come to me. And so, so, uh, I was walking one night outside and it was a nice uh, day about a year and a half ago. And that, that character defect that I just couldn't get rid of and I kept praying, God, take this away from me and so forth. I realized, hey, I haven't done this in months. I haven't exercised that character defect in months. It's gone. It is literally gone, and yet I prayed that morning to get rid of that character defect. Uh, and at that point, it hasn't come back, and at that point I realized that I've made my peace with God. And if you're as old as I am, 
you realize how important that starts to get. So I can honestly say, I can honestly say that I believe that the best years of my life are ahead of me in this life and the next. And uh, I wish you lasting sobriety. I wish your life be happy, joyous, and free, and that the best years of your life are ahead of you in this life or the next. And uh, may God bless you always. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.